Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Let's, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, in the text that we are looking at today, we see words which when you were tempted in the desert by the devil, words which comforted you, words that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And so, Lord, as we face trials and tests, um, we already know because it was true for Jesus that what was uh, written ages ago in Deuteronomy was not only to be interpreted for those who were in the desert wilderness, opposite the promised land. But it was for Jesus and it's for us today that we look at your word to bring us comfort and hope and endurance. And so we ask that you bless this time for your glory. And we pray this in your name. Amen. My wife and I are to a stage of parenting where all of our children, uh, as of right now, are mobile and none of them know how to swim without a floaty which means every time we go on a vacation near water, our conversations center on two things. There's grounds for celebration, and then there's lots of talks of concerns that we have. We want them to know that there's going to be water, there's going to be boats, there's going to be splashing and and playing, and we want to affirm that they're going to have a really good time wherever it is we're going, or so help me. We also want to tell them that if they're not careful, you're probably going to die. That's the stage of life that we're in. And every summer, my parents take our older kids um, to the lake, and so before they go, my wife and I, we have like a scared straight moment with our kids. And we tell them, if they listen to Oma and Opa, uh, they could get, or if they don't listen, they could get very hurt, they could maybe even die, but despite this, we're always reminding them that if they obey, all of this fear, all of these concerns will ultimately be mute in the end, and you're going to have a, a really good time. It's going to be a fun opportunity for you. And it's weird, this tension that we have, but if you're a parent, or if you've ever been a kid, any of you have ever been a kid, maybe this is relevant to you, we talk this way because we love our children, and we want what's best for them. We want them to know celebration and concern Because we want it to go well with them, wherever it is they're going. And we know that conversations like this, conversations that get at great optimism, but also get at weighty warnings, we do this for their good because God, the most ultimate parent and perfect father, has conversations with his children just like that. And it's this weighty but firm discussion, this firm and optimistic discussion that God is having with Israel today in Deuteronomy 7 and 8 through his servant Moses, who's preaching a sermon to God's people before they go into the promised land. So far in this sermon, Moses, um, it kind of takes a loose form of this treaty that Moses is giving. He recounts God's faithfulness. He shows the Ten Commandments. These are the stipulations that you need to meet to keep this covenant that God is giving to you. And now he's unpacking the stipulations. What will life look like in this covenant of redemption? In other words, the passage we're going to look at today repeats the message of confidence and concern. 
confidence that God is going to do what God has promised to do. And God is faithful to do it. No one is more faithful than God. But also concern. Concern that disobedience can lead to great harm and even death itself. In fact, five times in Deuteronomy 7 and 8, uh, Moses encourages the people with great confidence. Things that Johnny just read. There will be great houses. There will be hills of iron. There will be fruit and vineyards. But then five times, he warns that even God's people are at risk of judgment if they reject God and his command. And the central passage to um, our text today is, if you have your Bibles, it's going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verses 6 through 11. So I'm going to read that with you guys to start today. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So as you read that, I imagine you encountered both those reasons for confidence and reasons for concern. There's a sense of wonder and a sense of warning. But you also see in this text the motivation behind all of it. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, you are a holy people chosen by God. You see, these ideas of holiness, celebration, confidence, concern, these are going to be our primary themes today in verses 7, or in chapters 7 and 8 of Deuteronomy. There's going to be two things that we're going to see today in, in, in large part. So these are the two kind of big points we're going to unpack. Is the first is that a holy God sets his people apart as holy. A holy God sets his people apart as holy. And when we're in chapter 7, we're going to look at this, and what Moses is doing is he's preparing God's people for the threats that are in the land. But then the second thing we're going to look at is that a holy people sets God apart as holy. A holy people sets God apart as holy. And that's in chapter 8, where Moses is now preparing God's people for the threats that are in their own heart. Threats in the land and threats in their heart. And that's what we're going to see largely today. But before we dive in too far into these two points, I actually want to take some time and I want to spend some time unpacking the first five verses of Deuteronomy chapter 7 because in this text we see some shocking and some unexpected and some hard things when it comes to what we know about God. And these are often verses like this that the world uses to shake our confidence in the goodness of God and to show how silly and outdated the Bible is. And so we want to spend a little bit more time on the front end unpacking this. And so if you have a Bible... Deuteronomy 7, if you don't, grab one in the back when you leave. We'd love for you to have one. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5, reads like this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, 
the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire." And so here, God is calling Israel, his covenant people, to war with the nations that are inside of this land that God is going to give them. And he also prescribes what that warfare will look like. And in a sense, it's to look like complete destruction. And we already saw a glimpse of this back in chapters 2 and 3 of Deuteronomy, where they conquered Og, the kingdoms of Og and kingdoms of Sihon. But we want to take a minute and we want to pause and look at... Uh, the tension passages like this bring when we see the great, good, loving God of the Bible prescribing violence. And we'll actually talk about this more in Deuteronomy chapter 20. Uh, Moses is going to expound even more these rules for warfare for the people of Israel. But right now, I just want to touch on four things that we ought to know uh, when it comes to God prescribing this for his people. And, and that's this, that first... This military conquest is a special circumstance in the story of Scripture. God is bringing his physical nation state into a physical land, and as a result, there is going to be a physical war. But outside of the conquest of the promised land, which you see some in Deuteronomy and some in Joshua, you don't see prescriptions to war like this in the Bible. This is true not only in the New Testament, where the shape of God's people is no longer ethnic, but spiritual, but it's also true in the remainder of the Old Testament. Moses is going to, or Joshua is going to bring the people into the land, and because of their sin, the people are going to be brought out of the land, and then many years later, the people are going to be brought back into the promised land. And if you read through the minor and major prophets, you read of things like this, and when they come back to the promised land, there's all sorts of people from all different backgrounds living there. But these commands, God doesn't say, all right, you're coming back, kill everybody. He doesn't say that because this, this initial coming into the promised land on the promise of God was unique in salvation history. Second, we see that this isn't a wholesale extermination of a people group. Moses isn't prescribing these death squads to go roam through the countryside and find anyone who is not Jewish and put them to death. In fact, already at multiple times in Moses' sermon, he has assumed that there will be other people living in the land alongside of them. And he's been warning them of what that relationship might look like. Instead, what you see in texts like this is that the conquest of Israel centers on places of influence, namely established cities and places of worship. This war is primarily about tearing down influences which are harmful not only to the people who believe them but to the people of Israel. Third, 
we see that these nations are not innocent. And we'll see this as Deuteronomy progresses. The people of Israel's conquest is also God's divine judgment on the sins of these nations. These aren't neutral nations. They're not God-honoring nations. In fact, as we go through, we're going to see that these nations are sacrificing infants to pagan gods. These nations are selling their children into sex trafficking and prostitution for the sake of their own hedonistic and violent lifestyles. And it's in the face of such wickedness that we are at the same time longing for and uneasy with God's wrath against wickedness. If we want mercy, if we want justice, it is ultimately the Christian worldview that looks out on all the wrongdoing that is done in this world and says it will be punished. God will deal with it. If you want justice, you have to come to grips of a God who is just. And his justice is equal. Because as terrible as the Canaanites are in the seven nations that are in this land, you see in chapter 7, verse 4, and you also see in chapter 8, verse 20, that even if God's people were to live like this, they would be punished. They would be judged. God judges wickedness. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. It is exactly what we deserve when our unrepentant, godless lives are met with God's justice. But, Romans 6.23 continues, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Judgment is justice, but God provides mercy. And we even see this when we look at these laws for warfare. And this is the fourth point, is that actually in these prescriptions we see the mercy of God. After Moses finishes this sermon, um, he's handing off the people to Joshua, right? We've seen that. And Joshua's going to lead them into the promised land. And the very first city they encounter in the promised land is Jericho. The very first city where all of the prescriptions of the law, all of the laws about warfare are to be tested, they go to Jericho and the spies meet who? Rahab, who is not a Jew and a foreigner. And on top of that, she is not a priest. (laughs) She's a prostitute. Under the law, she is one who is not to be pitied at all. But when the spies get to Rahab, Rahab says, I have heard of your God. And our hearts are melting with fear because we recognize that your God is the God. And what happens? Rahab and her whole family are spared. In fact, when you get to Matthew chapter 1, we read this genealogy of Jesus. And it turns out that after Rahab was spared, she married an Israelite and she became the great, 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 many times over grandmother of Jesus himself. What an amazing mercy that God is already showing. And so in Jericho, does it show that God already isn't serious about the law? No. It just means that God is gracious even in judgment for those who seek after him. God's promise to Abraham was that the nations would be blessed through God's covenant people. And as the Old Testament unfolds and as human history unfolds, we see wicked people perishing in their wickedness. 
but we also see the grace of God extending to those who repent and come to God through Jesus Christ. That's the nature of a good and gracious God. God takes sin seriously. But God in Jesus delights to give serious grace to those who seek him. And so there's this tension of what we see here where we see God's mercy, but we also see God's judgment. And the reason why Moses is prescribing such conflict as this is that sin is always dangerous and it needs to be dealt with. If the people are to flourish in the land, there are dangers, concerns that need to be put out. And this conquest is a putting out of all the things that pose an eternal threat to God's people. It is for their good, but it also displays God's mercy. And so with that as a sort of preface, we're going to turn to our first point today. Because at the heart of this conquest and this putting out is actually a desire for holiness. And this is the first point today. Is that a holy God sets apart his people as holy. A holy God sets apart his people, that's Israel, as holy. And immediately in verse 5, God finishes prescribing this conquest. And then in verse 6, look at what he says. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why is Israel to live this way? Why is Israel to do this weighty task? Because God has chosen you as holy. See, even for us as New Testament believers, holiness and God's choosing love are the lens through which we view all of God's commands. Which means right now, we need to understand what holy means. What do you think it means to be holy? That's central to obedience. That's central to being loved by God. So what do you think holiness means? I think for most of my life, and for many of us, we equate holiness to perfection, right? The only people who are holy are grandmas and saints. That's what we kind of establish it to. To be holy is to be perfect. But that's not how the Bible uses this term holiness. That's not how Moses is using this term holiness. And how do we know that? Well, because starting next week, we're going to see so clearly in stunning detail that the people of Israel are far from perfect, They are broken, they are sinful, they are fickle, just like you and me. And this might be, this wrong understanding of holiness might be why many of us give up even trying to live what we might call holy lives. We start out on a path for holiness and we are so motivated that we are going to just kill all sin in our life and we go and we are met with obstacles and we are met with hurdles and we fail and we say, it's not worth it. I'll never be perfect. And so we just sit and we give up and we surrender and we stop trying. But if we would just listen to God's word, all of it is grace to those who are weak. All of it is grace to those who see God rightly and see what he's saying in Scripture. Did you see what Moses said? Listen here. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Did you see what he's saying? You are a people 
holy to the Lord. He isn't saying, one day you might be holy. One day, if you keep this law perfectly, then you will receive the perfect title of holy. He's saying, you, Israel, already are holy. So what does this mean, if they already are holy? Because they're obviously not perfect, and they obviously are still struggling, so what is it that makes them holy? And again, this is important for you today. The primary way that the New Testament authors identify Christians is as saints. And saints is from the root word agios, which just means to be made holy. So what does holy mean? It means this. It simply means to be set apart, to be made distinct. It's really related to another theological word we often use to be sanctified. And sometimes it's easiest to understand what sanctified means when it means to think of it in the opposite. The opposite of being sanctified is being desecrated, not reserved, violated from a specific purpose. To be holy is to be set apart, to be distinct. Kanye West has been this celebrity, everyone's laughing already, there's no joke, (laughs) has been this celebrity and this recording artist, and he's been very, very successful, and he's put out many, many albums, but he just came out with an album a couple weeks ago, and to him, this album was to be distinct because it was an album about the gospel. So distinct that he actually prohibited the staff that was working on this album from pornography and sex outside of marriage. Because despite all of the albums that he has ever made, this is the album he's encountering as a born-again Christian. And he wanted it to be different, distinct, set apart, from everything else. And here Moses is saying to the people of Israel, you are set apart. You are distinct. You are holy already. And how do they know they're holy? Well, he tells us, because God chose you. God took you as his treasured possession. God has taken you for himself. Look at how he describes this calling to to holiness in verses 6 through 11. Listen to it again through this lens of what holy is and where we see it in this text. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, that is to be set apart to the Lord your God. For the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, It was not because you were more in number than any people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. So he's speaking of the Exodus there. From the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. And he repays those to their face who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So, how do you know 
if you are holy. The New Testament says that without holiness, in Hebrews, no one will see the Lord. How do you know that you're holy? You are holy if God has called you to himself in loving deliverance. For the people of Israel, it was the God who brought them out of slavery. And for those who sit on this side of the cross, it is those to whom Jesus has delivered from sin through his work on the cross. And how do you know if he has delivered you? How do you know if God has set his love on you? Do you see that language, that setting of love that makes us holy? What is our response to that? What is our confidence in that? Well, this is what Moses has been after. It started last week. It's here this week. We're going to see it next week. It's that you respond to God's grace by loving him and by obeying him. And again, we're going to talk more about this next week, but isn't this just a wonderful picture into redemption, both for Israel and to saints? Why did God choose Israel? Now, when you're dating someone, if you date or if you're going for a job interview, this is just the funniest answer you could get, right? Why, you, know, you know why I chose to marry you, Sarah? Because you were the only one left. It's not because you were the most beautiful. It's not because you were the strongest. It's just because you were the least. <laughs> but isn't that what God's doing here? Why did God choose Israel? Why did God choose to wake your heart to the gospel? Out of all the people who are on the face of the earth, why does your heart respond in love to what God has done? Because he loves you. Because God is a loving God, broken people are delivered. That means to experience the love of God is to experience the salvation of God. If there is no salvation, if there is no sin, then there is no reason that God would reveal to himself to us as loving but because of our brokenness, he loves us and he brings us to him. Our sin separates us, but God's love comes after us. Moses added, here's this wonderful thing, which I don't think we'll ever understand. Moses adds no motivation to God's saving work outside of God's unmerited love. God loves us through his saving gospel. And when he loves us with that saving good news, as we see with Israel, we become his treasured possession. We become squirmish under the desire God has for us because it's so unearned. And when a pure and loving God saves us, redeems us, and brings us home, it makes sense that our response would be faithfulness to that God, wouldn't it? Because God loves us, because God saves us, it's reasonable that he would desire us to be set apart for him and for him alone. If you don't think that's reasonable, there is going to be an awkward conversation with you and the spouse, which God might one day bring you, <laughs> that we don't need to be faithful. But here God is saying, be faithful. 
Don't we want a spouse to be jealous, as we've seen a word that Moses uses, jealous for our affection? That we'd be exclusive and pure and holy to them, especially when the spouse which is calling us to faithfulness is the wonderful, gracious God of Scripture who has granted all things and delivered us from everything. What God is after is our holiness. He wants us to have a relationship set apart as pure and beneficial. And we've already seen that Moses is recounting that God is faithful. God is faithful to maintain his holiness. God is faithful to be set apart by his covenant. The question to Israel as they're about to go into the land is, will you be set apart? Will you be holy to the Lord? Because Moses now says, when you go into the land... That distinct relationship of being taken by this God out of slavery and brought to him, it's going to be tested. There are going to be things that want to ruin the set-apartness which God has done in your life. There are going to be external threats which try to take what God has made sacred and they're going to try to desecrate it to make it look like everything else in this world. And Moses makes it clear in verse 10 that to love those things, to listen to those threats, is to hate the God who saved you. And when we do that, we not only miss out on the wonderful blessing of God, but we actually find ourselves under God's judgment. And so Moses here identifies the three primary external threats that these people will encounter in the land. Those are false worship, godless relationships, and the allure of wealth. Look at how he speaks of these things in Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 5, a passage we already read. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons and taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled quickly against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars. These are all religious instruments. And chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. And skip ahead to verse 25 through 26. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourself, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. See, there are three times in this text in Deuteronomy where uh, Moses says that you would be destroyed just like them if that's how you live. If you lose this distinction, then you also become undistinct in judgment. And there are things that he's saying here, that there are external threats, both for Israel then and for us today, that wage war on our relationship with God. We saw this at the end of Ephesians, didn't we? To put on the full armor of God, because this world wages war against our hearts. And we think of those three three threats. It hasn't moved much since 4,000 years ago, has it? False worship, which for them was syncretistic worship. The world not saying you can't worship, but the world saying you need to worship how we think you should worship. Money and godless relationships. I I can say, my wife and I were just talking about this this week, that there are lots of reasons that non-believers stay 
non-believers. Lots of things about the gospel that seem offensive to them that God must open their heart to. But I, can, I don't think I've seen more professing believers walk away from the promise of God than those who are pulled away by dating non-believers. It's a trap that everyone thinks they can avoid, but it's taken the lives of many. Paul warns in 2 Corinthians 6.14 that we ought not be yoked to non-believers. Moses knew this was a temptation 4,000 years ago. Paul knew it was a temptation 2,000 years ago. We know it is a temptation today. And we have a church with lots of young adults, lots of single people in it, and the temptation is to think that you, out of the rest of us, are equipped to handle this. That you're strong enough to navigate a relationship with someone who doesn't love the Lord. But why would you risk such hard-heartedness to God's gracious wisdom? And those of you in here, single or not, who might provide counsel, what counsel do you provide? Those who wrestle with this. Where the culture of our day is follow your heart, God is here fighting for the preservation of your heart. Gerald Moore was a, a world-famous accompanist, and he described uh, in his memoir this, this beautiful opera singer who in the waning stages of her career just completely crumbled in terms of her quality and drifted away kind of into nothingness. So this unfolded painfully before his eyes, and this is what he said. He said that this musician was, quote, destroyed by a man she loved deeply, by a man without an atom of music in his soul, cruel and calloused, who enjoyed torturing her by telling her that she was nothing. I'm going to say, this person doesn't tell me I'm nothing. But Colossians 3 says, looks to the future hope of the believer. It says, when Christ who is your life appears. Believers, if Christ is your life, then those who do not see Christ see nothing of your life. And if our salvation in Deuteronomy is the distinct saving love of God, then shouldn't we not risk things that seem to do away with that distinction? Shouldn't we strive to be distinct in all areas because we want to be wholly true to our God? This is true with how you worship. This is true with who you date. This is true with your desire for money. And the truth is, is we know how cultural approval, romantic love, and wealth pull on our hearts. They are powerful, aren't they? And our response to such things can be fear. That this distinction is dangerous. But look at what Moses says next in Deuteronomy 7, 17 through 22. If you say in your heart, these nations, the nations with worship, wealth, and women are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. But you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. 
so will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them. The point being, you hardly have to do anything. God's going to do it with bugs. Hornets among them, until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end to them all at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. So here in Deuteronomy, in a literal sense, and in the New Testament, in a metaphorical sense, the life of faith, the life of holiness is described in military language. It's a battle. And in your battle and in Israel's battle, it's often easy to say as they did and notice the the perspective. These nations are bigger than I. These nations are stronger than I. And Moses doesn't argue that point. He doesn't say, oh, you're so much bigger than they are. In fact, Moses already alluded to this, right? Look back at verse 1 of chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to take possession of it and clears away the many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. They are bigger than you. The hurdles to your holiness are always going to be ominous to you. They're always going to be larger than you. But they're never bigger than your God. And the God who has called you to himself, the God who has set you apart with his choosing love, will not abandon you in that fight. And I imagine in here today are people who need to hear that. That you feel sometimes rightfully so, that you stand facing a King Kong every day. But God is bigger than that. Whether it is the allure of wealth or a certain someone or syncretistic worship, sin embedded in our heart, this great God makes a way forward. And I love how he says this happens. We need this today. He says in verse 22, God will clear away these nations before you little by little. He will not make an end to them all at once. Don't we need to realize that? That the progress of a Christian is always forward in obedience. God had given Israel the land and they were to go forward, but God had so designed it to happen little by little. When it comes to your own efforts, we ought to little by little look less like the people of the land and more like the people of the Lord. What does this look like in your life? Where can you look back and begin to see these distinctions that are distinctions only because God has so placed his love on you in Jesus that your heart responds with joyful Love. Now remember, holiness does not make you lovable before God. Holiness is a sign that you are loved by God. Holiness is a wonderful affirmation. It's almost the wedding ring of the Christian soul where you look and you remind yourself that someone has loved you like this. Someone has given you the ability to take little by little areas of your life that were once conquered 
by sin. Don't we want that daily affirmation in the wonderful, weighty distinctions of Christian life? That's the celebration and the concern of holiness, that it celebrates God's love, but it is also a weighty thing that we ought to see it as serious. That's the threats that are in the land. And now in chapter 8, we see Moses is no longer preparing them for the external threats that are in the land. He's actually preparing them for the internal threats, for the threats that lie in their own hearts. And it's here we see the second point today, that a holy people sets God apart as holy. A holy people sets God apart as holy. So not only does God set us apart in salvation, but for those who have been delivered, we set God apart as holy. And this is really important to understand because if we're not careful, we can easily leverage a pursuit of holiness into a life of legalism. Right? You've all heard the terms holier than thou. And when someone calls you that, you don't say thank you. (laughs) It's not generally a good thing, is it? And so the question is, as God is calling Israel and as God is calling us as believers in Jesus to be holy, how does that holiness, how does that set-apartness, how does that distinction not simply become behavior modification or elevated morality? How do we protect ourselves from that. This is why we must see that not only does God set his people apart, but that those who are truly God's people set God apart. He becomes distinct. And it's only when we, have, when we see God as distinct, it's only when we see God as something bigger, better, different than us, that we can ever make sense of sin and judgment. It's only when God is different, better, bigger than us that we can ever actually see a need for salvation that we ourselves can't achieve. That's to say, if all we do is look at our holiness, we're going to be prone to either anxiety, I don't match up, or arrogance, look at what I've done. But if we learn to see God as holy, as God is the one who is wholly true, God is the covenant-keeping, choosing, loving, delivering God, then all of our life is filled only with God's gracious goodness and not our own self-righteous effort. Meaning this, if God isn't set apart as holy in your heart, you will never be fully set apart as holy in this world. Because holiness starts in your heart. It starts with how you view the God who has delivered you and how you see responses to that. And this is now where Moses turns in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 8. Listen to this. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live, multiply, go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on your... on your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son the lord your god disciplines you 
And so Moses now turns and he's reflecting on the 40 years of wandering, right? Kadesh, Barnea, door number one to the promised land. God says, go in. The people say there are big people, tall people and big walls. We're not going in. And there's a 40-year time out in the desert of judgment. And he's now describing that time of judgment. For 40 years, you wandered in the desert and your clothes did not wear out. Can you imagine that? I can't keep jeans untorn on my children for two weeks and playing in a lush backyard full of grass. And here for 40 years, people are wandering in the wilderness and their clothes didn't wear out. We're talking about this in my community group the other day. And uh, a guy was in the military and he talked about what stands out to him in this is that their feet didn't swell. He knows that marching for any extended period of time causes your feet to swell and there'd be a lot of pain. But here... No swelling. Now, in our culture, if we could buy clothes that never wore out and shoes that never prevented our, or that always prevented our feet from swelling, wouldn't we do it? Wouldn't we pay anything to have that? There would be lines for days to purchase that product, but this is Moses' point. You can't buy this with your wealth because it's not a product. It's a relationship. It's a person. It was their God who delivered them, who each and every day gave them what they needed. And you today, in your wilderness, you can have something better than shoes that don't swell, or feet that don't swell and clothes that don't wear out. You could have this God. You can respond to this God. You can know it in your hardship. Look at what he says again in verses 3 through 5. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know. Listen to the emphasis, right? These repeated words. What is Moses doing? Which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your feet did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you." Your fathers didn't know, you didn't know, but now you know what? That you do not live on bread, relationships, comfort, wealth, satisfaction, appearance, nice homes, the American economy. You live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And every season in your life is testing you, disciplining you. He wants these people to see Moses saying that just as a father trains his child, just as a trainer disciples an athlete, God wants to discipline our hearts for faithful endurance, knowing that whatever what happens, we have the God who provides. He wanted them to know the patterns which prove ineffective, and the patterns which always worked. He says, looking back, don't you always see God as faithful? Israel, do you always see that God has always provided? For you today, when you look back at the cross of Jesus, is it not easy to, to look back and see God's wonderful faithfulness? The cross shows our wilderness. 
It shows that our sin demanded death, death which Jesus paid for us. Just based on what has happened, shouldn't Jesus be distinct in our lives? Shouldn't he be so wonderfully set apart from any sort of prize or product this world offers? There's this uh, song, uh, this hymn, it originated in the slave trade of African-American slaves where it it says this, it's been kind of modernized, but the, the, the chorus is, give me Jesus. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. When dark midnight was my cry, give me Jesus. When I come to die, give me Jesus. Why? Because nothing is like this Jesus. It is so wholly distinct from any other object we could put our hope in. It is the only hope. And Moses looks back and he says, look at what God did for you then. And now he begins to look forward and he says, look at what God's going to do for you in the future to come. And here's this long passage. Stay with me. This is the longest we're going to be in the word today. And listen to this longing Moses has for these people, this confidence and this concern. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandment and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you to test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm that his covenant he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. You see, it's really easy to see the goodness of God when we're in need of fixing. But the constant reprieve of Scripture is it's often harder to see God as good when things are fixed. Our fickle hearts quickly forget God's love and his might. And when that happens, God loses his holy distinction. He no longer becomes our exclusive source of strength or comfort. He just becomes one of another option. And if there's another relationship, if there's another drink, if there's another pleasure that satisfies, then if it's less costly, we'll take that. It's not any different than God. But this is why we must learn to do what Peter commands the church to do, the church in dispersion in 1 Peter 3.15. 
but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. What is he calling them to do? You. Do the work of honoring Christ as holy. For him to be set apart in your affection. Now, if we're not careful, we can look at passages like this, and we can see a lack of a heartfelt distinction towards God or Jesus, and we could see it almost as something which makes God pitiable. Like a dog whose owner has grown up and isn't coming home, and he's sitting there pouting on the floor. Or like Buzz and Woody when Andy gets older. It's like, oh, poor God. If only people would set him apart. But that is not how this is. In these moments, God is not the one to be pitied. We are. Did you see what he said, verses 19 through 20? And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord God makes perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. When God fails to be seen as holy in your hearts, it is you who are in trouble, not God. It is you who ought to feel the weight of judgment for your good so that you might turn back and know. So in our deserts and in our delights, how do we not forget the grace of God? Peter already answered that question. The hope of holiness, the hope that we would always set Christ apart as holy, is in a constant awareness of our hope inside of our salvation. Right? Look back. Verse uh, 15 of 1 Peter 3. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Why? always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. If we want to constantly see Jesus as holy, constantly see him as special and set apart, the only worthy object of our hope in a world filled with external tests, we must constantly learn to be amazed at our hope, our unchanging hope in the gospel. Not hope in general, not hope for Israel, not hope for the church. Do you hear what he says? Hope for you. For your personal hope in the unchanging message of Jesus. To know what Christ has done for you is to be amazed by a hope which longs to have a Jesus bigger than everything else. And do you see that language, that beautiful language of uniqueness in verses 6 through 9 of Deuteronomy 7? Listen again at this wonderful saving God. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you are more in number than any people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is distinct. Who keeps covenant and steadfast love 
with those who love him and keep his commandment. God saves because he loves us. He sent his son to make us holy because he desired to treasure us. He desired an exclusive relationship with us. He overcame the problems of our brokenness in heart because he chose you for his own joy. And in the face of all the trials you encounter, you have no hope apart from that hope. There is only concern for no God is big enough to deliver. But if this God is your God, if his choosing love has chosen you and awakened your eyes in faith to which you respond saying, this is the Christ who saves me, then life is this tension of celebration, knowing God will preserve you. But also this concern of knowing nothing is more important than following God with love and holiness. The only way into this hope is to see what Jesus has done for you. And if you've never seen that, I pray today that God opens your eyes that the weight of that wonderful, unmerited love rolls over you and you can give up your efforts to earn your holiness and instead you see that Jesus has made you holy by his own love. And for those of you who are believers, I pray that God continues to set himself apart as holy in our hearts so that as we, the physical, visible church, live out that distinction towards God. We become distinct in our world. I'm sure each of us has some scent, some food, some item that sparks in us really powerful memories. Memories that when we encounter it, taste it, smell it, we not only remember what happened, but all of the context of that memory seems so real, so near, regardless of what's going on in our life. Does the smell of the gospel have that kind of sway over, over you? As we live out our lives in this land, God wants that sweet aroma of salvation to remind us that it is God who got us here. And it is God who will take us where we need to be. So may we be ones, holy and set apart by the Lord, to be his treasured possession because he loves us. And he wants what's best for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you cause our hearts to think on you distinctly because of what you've done. No other God, no God of the Canaanites, no woman, no man, no wealth can ever do what you have done. And because of that, you are worthy of exclusive devotion and faithful trust. So Lord, we pray that as you become increasingly bigger in our hearts, that your holiness becomes increasingly bigger in our lives. We pray that this text is a warning to those who think that complacency and familiarity with the world is friendship with God. Where James tells us that is to be an enemy of God. And to those who realize that we ought to be distinct but are wrestling in their own power, I pray you bring to them the wonderful power
power, the power which in the Old Testament was there to bring them the displacement of the lands, and the power which in the New Testament is God himself, the Holy Spirit, dwelling inside of us, laboring for his glory, that you would strengthen our weak knees by inflaming our saved hearts. So it might be joy to be distinct because you have loved us with a distinct love. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.